Let's stand together, brothers and sisters, for the reading of God's Word. I'll be reading in Luke chapter 23, starting at verse 32 and reading through to verse 56. The title of today's sermon is, The Veil of the Temple Was Torn in Two, and you'll see there verse 45 is underlined as the verse of focus. Please listen carefully because this is God's holy and infallible word. There were also two others, criminals, led with him to be put to death. And when they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And they divided his garments and cast lots, and the people stood looking on. But even the rulers with them sneered, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ, the chosen of God. The soldiers also mocked him, coming and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And an inscription also was written over him in the letters of Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. Then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other, answering, rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise Now it was about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. Then the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. So when the centurion saw what had happened, he glorified God, saying, Certainly this was a righteous man. And the whole crowd who came together to that sight, seeing what had been done, beat their breasts and returned. But all his acquaintances and the women who followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Now behold, there was a man named Joseph, a council member, a good and just man. He had not consented to their decision and deed. He was from Arimathea, a city of the Jews, who himself was also waiting for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down, wrapped it in linen and laid it in a tomb that was hewn out of the rock where no one had ever lain before. That day was the preparation, and the Sabbath drew near. And the women who had come with him from Galilee followed after, and they observed the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and fragrant oils, and they rested on the Sabbath according to the commandment. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Brothers and sisters, our Lord Jesus Christ, He is the second Adam. He is the perfect man. And through the abundance of grace that we have in Him, the saints of God are restored to more than Adam lost. We are restored to more than Adam lost. Romans 5, But the free gift is not like the offense. For if by the one man's offense many died... Much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. 
For the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation. But the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. For if by the one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. Morales, in his excellent work, Who Shall Ascend the Mountain of the Lord, which I commend to all of you to read, has this to say. It bears on our text. Reading the narratives of Genesis 2 and 3 as pertaining merely to origins unrelated to the rest of the biblical story is a regrettably common approach. From the perspective of the Pentateuch's overall composition, however, <clears throat> the theological role and paradigmatic function of Eden is deeply significant. As stated previously, the expulsion from Eden becomes the central tragic event propelling the entire drama of the Pentateuch and of the rest of the Bible. Indeed, throughout the history narrated in Genesis, this dilemma is only intensified. After Adam and Eve have been expelled from the Garden of Eden, it appears they did not stray from the bounds of Eden itself. Eden being broader than the garden within it. Though the lines are subtle and sparse, a definite landscape surfaces through the sketch. No longer able to abide in the divine presence within the garden, the Holy of Holies, humanity now meets with God at the gate of Eden's garden, which has become the cultic site for sacrifice and for worship. We have already considered various features that mark out the garden as an archetypal Holy of Holies, Perhaps the most obvious one, however, was not addressed. Namely, the cherubim posted at the eastward entrance. The cherubim reappear in only one other context in the entire Pentateuch, and that is in the Holy of Holies in the sanctuary. Cherubim and other like creatures were the traditional guardians of sacred space in the ancient Near East. The veil of the tabernacle's Holy of Holies was embroidered with cherubim. And cherubim were also fashioned upon the atonement lid of the ark. Later, the inner sanctuary of Solomon's temple, too, would be guarded by large cherubim statues. As explained in Leviticus, the tabernacle's eastward door served as the place where Israelites would come to present their offerings before the presence of Yahweh. So today we'll talk about this temple veil, this tabernacle veil. We'll... Look at that extensively, uh, looking at cherubim and really trying to understand what God is teaching us about this veil and how it links back to the Garden of Eden and how it instructs us in what God was saying when that, temp when that temple veil was torn in two. We'll look at the three hours of darkness and we'll go back and consider what day of the week this happened and what was happening at that moment when Jesus was on the cross, those hours when he was on the cross and the, leading up to the moment when he died when the veil of the temple was torn in two, and then he breathed his last. And then, of course, some questions to know and to love and to obey God. So first of all, about the veil. As we go through this, you'll see there's, there's three veils that we can talk about. There's the veil of the tabernacle, there's the veil of Solomon's temple, and then there's the veil of Herod's temple. And we'll look at each of these. So first, there's God's instruction to Moses regarding the veil of the tabernacle. In Exodus 26, verses 30 through 33, and this is an artistic rendition. 
And you shall raise up the tabernacle according to its pattern which you were shown on the mountain. So Moses saw a pattern of this when he was on the mountain with God. You shall make a veil woven of blue, purple, and scarlet thread and fine woven linen. It shall be woven with an artistic design of cherubim. You shall hang it upon the four pillars of acacia wood overlaid with gold. Their hooks shall be gold upon four sockets of silver, and you shall hang the veil from the clasps. Then you shall bring the ark of the testimony in there behind the veil. The veil shall be a divider for you between the holy place and the most holy place. So the veil's purpose. So why is this veil there? The veil that was torn in two when Jesus died on the cross. Why is it there? The Bible tells us it is a divider for you between the holy place and the most holy place. The most holy place being the place of God's presence. And this word divide means to separate, to distinguish, to differ, to select, to make difference, to separate asunder, to sever. Now the instruction that God gave is obeyed. The veil is made. Exodus 36, and he made a veil of blue, purple, and scarlet thread and fine woven linen. It was worked with an artistic design of cherubim. He made for it four pillars of acacia wood and overlaid them with gold, with their hooks of gold, and he cast four sockets of silver for them. So it was important to God that this dividing spot had cherubim on it in artistic design. And then the veil is hung as commanded. They didn't just create the veil. They actually hung it right where God told them to. And it came to pass in the first month of the second year, on the first day of the month that the tabernacle was raised up. So Moses raised up the tabernacle, fastened its socket, set up its boards, put in its bars, and raised up its pillars. And he spread out the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering of the tent on top of it, as the Lord had commanded Moses. He took the testimony and put it into the ark, inserted the poles through the rings of the ark, and put the mercy seat on top of the ark. And he brought the ark into the tabernacle, hung up the veil of the covering, and partitioned off the ark of the testimony as the Lord had commanded Moses. So there it is. They did what God said. They put the ark of the covenant with a mercy seat on top on the other side of this veil as commanded. And on this veil is this artistic design of cherubim. We see the veil in Solomon's temple as well. So it's not just in the tabernacle. In 2 Chronicles, we can also see it in Kings. He made the veil of blue, purple, crimson, and fine linen and wove cherubim into it. Okay? We also can talk about the veil of Herod's temple. And this is more from historical accounts than from Scripture. Before these doors, this is Josephus from his uh, Jewish Wars Volume 5, before these doors, there was a veil of equal largeness with the doors. It was a Babylonian curtain, embroidered with blue and fine linen and scarlet and purple and of a contexture that was truly wonderful. Nor was this mixture of colors without its mystical interpretation, but was a kind of image of the universe. This curtain had also embroidered upon it all that was mystical in the heavens, representing living creatures. So we have historical words there suggesting that the cherubim was on that the cherubim were on that veil also ancient Jewish writings speak of Herod's curtain and it is described as being 40 cubits by 20 cubits so that's 60 feet by 30 feet these same writings speak of the curtain being as thick as a man's hand and requiring 300 priests to move it about 
But this could be hyperbole according to later Jewish writings. So we don't really know, but there's a suggestion from the Jewish writings that it was big and heavy and thick. Uh, another part of the writings that I read is that it took dozens, I think the number was 72, of, of these young women working year-round to make a new one, actually to make two new of these curtains each year. Because they always wanted to have a backup. And if, it, if anything happened to it, the priest had to take it down and clean it up so they had to have another one to put up in its place. So what, you might ask, is a cherub? Because, you know, of course, cherubim is plural, right? Well, I can tell you it's not a seraphim, okay? They have different numbers of wings in case you're wondering, okay? And so we can tell that the seraphim that we see, for example, in Revelation, the living creatures right by God, they have six wings. So they're not cherubs. Now, here's an actual cherubim, or here's actual cherubim guarding the way to the tree of life in Genesis 3. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. And now, lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man, and he placed cherubim at the east of the garden of Eden, and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Perhaps this, this is why there's red in the curtain. So there are multiple cherubs placed here. And the suggestion is, at least for a time, that Adam and Eve could see these creatures standing there. There was no hope of them getting back into the garden, but they could come close. They could still draw near to the spot that they remembered, I'm sure with such fondness, the time when they would be with God walking in the cool of the day before sin entered. Now, we also see that there are cherubim over the mercy seat in the tabernacle, Exodus 25. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold, two and a half cubits shall be its length and a cubit and a half its width. And you shall make two cherubim of gold of hammered work. You shall make them at the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub at one end and the other cherub at the other end. You shall make the cherubim at the two ends of it of one piece with the mercy seat. And the cherubim shall stretch out their wings above, covering the mercy seat with their wings, and they shall face one another. And the faces of the cherubim shall be toward the mercy seat. You shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I will give you. And there I will meet with you, and I will speak with you from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim which are on the ark of the testimony, about everything which I will give you in commandment to the children of Israel. So you can see now the cherubim begin to show us God's presence. Not just guarding so that you can't get to God's presence, but He comes and He dwells. And He's spoken of later as one who, the one who dwells between the cherubim. But it's also, these images are also on the tabernacle, tabernacle external curtains. Exodus 26, Moreover, shall make the tabernacle with ten curtains of fine woven linen and blue, purple, and scarlet thread with artistic designs of cherubim you shall weave them. You see, a time was coming when they would not be able to see these cherubim. Can we see these angels today? Do you see any? Does anyone look around? It's raining. We see that. The lights are on. We see each other. Does anyone see any cherubim? Why do you think they were all over the walls? Maybe we should put cherubim all over our walls. Why? Because they are with us. I see what's going on. 
I see one sitting in the back, brother. <laughs> so we, what we want to remember that there's a lot in this world that we can't see. And so part of the artistic design there is teaching us that there's way more going on than what we can see. There's also in Exodus 26, as we've discussed already, on the tabernacle veil hiding the Holy of Holies. And now we see an actual moment reported to us. This is beautiful. In Numbers Now, when Moses went into the tabernacle of meeting to speak with him, he heard the voice of one speaking to him from above the mercy seat that was on the ark of the testimony from between the two cherubim. Thus, he spoke to him. So God did what he said he would do. He came and spoke to Moses between the cherubim. In 1 Samuel and also in 2 Kings and in Chronicles and two places in the Psalms, at least one place in Isaiah, God is described as he who dwells between the cherubim. And it's between the cherubim of the tabernacle and some of those references, but it's also, like in the Psalms, it appears to be referencing heaven, that somehow God dwells between the cherubim in heaven. So the cherubim are important angels to God. And they're on this veil, and this veil gets ripped in two when Jesus dies. It's also over the mercy seat in Solomon's temple, not just in the tabernacle. It's different in Solomon's temple. Inside the inner sanctuary, he made two cherubim of olive wood, each ten cubits high. One wing of the cherub was five cubits, and the other wing of the cherub five cubits. Ten cubits from the tip of one wing to the tip of the other. And the other cherub was ten cubits. Both cherubim were of the same size and shape. The height of one cherub was ten cubits, and so was the other cherub. So they're ten by ten cubits, each of these statues. Then he set the cherubim inside the inner room and they stretched out the wings of the cherubim so that the wing of the one touched one wall and the wing of the other cherub touched the other wall and their wings touched each other in the middle of the room. Also, he overlaid the cherubim with gold. So that's a cubit's about a foot and a half, uh, we we guess. And so that's about 15 feet that we're talking about uh, of each cherub and 30 feet wide, if we're doing our math right, and uh, 15 feet tall was this whole thing you would have seen when you walked in there. And the wings spread out, and all of them all of them facing towards the mercy seat, covered with gold. Now, also, Solomon, he wanted more cherubim, I guess, because he made some doors into the inner sanctuary and put cherubim on these doors also. For the entrance of the inner sanctuary, he made doors of olive wood. The lintel and doorpost were one-fifth of the wall. The two doors were of olive wood, and he carved on them figures of cherubim, palm trees, and open flowers, and overlaid them with gold, and he spread gold on the cherubim and on the palm trees. It's likely the palm trees are meant to bring to mind the tree of life and the eternal life that is ours in, in God's favor. But you see the cherubim and the palm trees are overlaid with gold. Now there's another time here where we get an, uh, a vision from Ezekiel where we see actually what these creatures look like. Okay? So you might be wondering, what do they look like? Caleb, have you ever wondered what a cherubim looks like? An angel looks like? We're about to learn what an angel looks like. Ezekiel saw it. I think it's exciting. You guys ready? It's what Ezekiel saw. And I looked, and there in the firmament that was above the head of the cherubim, there appeared something like a sapphire stone, having the appearance of the likeness of a throne. Then he spoke to the man clothed with linen and said, Go in among the wheels, under the cherub, fill your hands with coals of fire from among the cherubim, and scatter them over the city. And he went in as I watched. 
Now the cherubim were standing on the south side of the temple when the man went in, and the cloud filled the inner court. Then the glory of the Lord went up from the cherub and paused over the threshold of the temple, and the house was filled with the cloud, and the court was full of the brightness of the Lord's glory. And the sound of the wings of the cherubim was heard even in the outer court. Okay, cherubim have wings. And the sound of the wings of the cherubim was heard even in the outer court, like the voice of Almighty God when he speaks. So the wings from the carving are not just metaphorical. They really have wings. And they make a lot of wonderful sounds. Listen to the description. Like the voice of Almighty God when he speaks. Those are cherubim wings. Then it happened when he commanded the man clothed in linen, saying, Take fire from among the wheels from among the cherubim that he went in and stood beside the wheels. And the cherub stretched out his hand from among the cherubim to the fire that was among the cherubim and took some of it and put it into the hands of the man clothed with linen who took it and went out. The cherubim appeared to have the form of a man's hand under their wings. So under their wings, on their body, it appears as though it has the form of a man's hand under their wings. That makes sense because they were holding a sword, we were told. Yes. And when I looked, there were four wheels by the cherubim, one wheel by one cherub and another wheel by each other cherub. The wheels appeared to have the color of barrel stone. As for their appearance, all four looked alike, as it were a wheel in the middle of a wheel. When they went, they went toward any of their four directions. They did not turn aside when they went, but followed in the direction the head was facing. They did not turn aside when they went, and their whole body with their back, their hands, their wings, and the wheels that the four had were full of eyes all around. So this is something that seraphim and cherubim have in common. They are covered up with eyes. That will get your attention. Yes? Their whole body with their back, their hands, their wings, and the wheels that the four had were full of eyes all around. As for the wheels, they were called in my hearing, wheel. Each one had four faces. The first face was the face of a cherub. The second face, the face of a man. The third, the face of a lion. And the the fourth, the face of an eagle. And the cherubim were lifted up. This was the living creature I saw by the river Chebar. When the cherubim went, the wheels went beside them. And when the cherubim lifted their wings to mount up from the earth, the same wheels also did not turn from beside them. When the cherubim stood still, the wheels stood still. And when one was lifted up, the other lifted itself up. For the spirit of the living creature was in them. Then the glory of the Lord departed from the threshold of the temple and stood over the cherubim. And the cherubim lifted their wings and mounted up from the earth in my sight. When they went out, the wheels were beside them, and they stood at the door of the east gate of the Lord's house, and the glory of the God of Israel was above them. This is the living creature I saw under the God of Israel by the river Chebar, and I knew they were cherubim. Each one had four faces and each one four wings, and the likeness of the hands of a man was under their wings. And the likeness of their faces was the same as the faces which I had seen by the river Chebar, their appearance and their persons. They each went straight forward. This is what we're talking about. God made these creatures, these cherubim, and he told his people to put artistic designs on the veil. And he placed these creatures, they're blocking their way back into Eden when they were expelled from the garden. And these are mighty creatures. They're glorious creatures. And the question, I guess, that would come to mind is if if you were Adam, 
you think you might try to fight your way back into the garden if you saw one of these creatures? Of course not. You would know there had to be some other way made. Now they were also on the walls of Ezekiel's temple vision, just like kind of what Solomon did when he put it on the walls. Ezekiel saw it on the walls of his temple vision. So, back into today's text. The veil of the tabernacle and the veil of Solomon's temple and, very likely, Herod's temple were decorated with artistic renditions of cherubim. And we know there was red that was there. And also we know that real cherubim with flaming swords were set to guard the way back into the inner sanctuary of the garden to the Lord's presence and to the tree of life. And let's not forget, as a side note from a prior verse, that he told the thief that he would save, where would he go with him? Paradise. And in the Septuagint, that same Greek word is used for Eden. So we see this whole glorious theme of God returning us to Eden. Returning us to better than Eden in Christ our Lord. So what is this three hours of darkness about? Well, there's certainly a lot that could be said about this. Um, But we're going to focus on just a couple of key ideas. The text says it was about the sixth hour and there was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. And then later we'll see that in verse 45 it says, then the sun was darkened. So this was not a darkened sun that caused this. This was supernatural darkness placed upon the land by God. The entire land of Israel Israel, and possibly the whole earth was covered with darkness between noon and 3 p.m. while Jesus hung on the cross. So that's what was happening. They could not see their hand in front of their face. And think of what happened in Egypt when darkness came. That was a supernatural darkness. God poured darkness on them, and this is what happened here. We can't be dogmatic about that, but that's, I think, the best understanding of what happened. Now, what would have been happening at this time? We've talked about this before, but it's important for us to go through it again now that we're here at this text. This would ordinarily have been the time when the hundreds of thousands of lambs were being prepared for slaughter at the temple. As we've already discussed, Christ being crucified on Thursday, being crucified on the day of preparation before the high day Sabbath, that's when the lambs were sacrificed. This was not a Sabbath day. And so it's Thursday of that year, we believe, most likely, not Friday. And so what's happening while he's on the cross? The lights go out right when they're supposed to be preparing all of these lambs. Now, as I said, we looked at this in the past. The title of that sermon was Three Days and Three Nights in the Heart of the Earth uh, from March 28th of this year. And I relied heavily on Pastor Kaiser then, and I'm going to do it again. I want you to listen again to these quotes from his sermon. Christ is sacrificed and he dies during the same hours as the Passover lambs being prepared. So he's hanging on the cross during that three-hour time frame. Those were the precise hours when preparations would have been made in the temple between 12 and 3 o'clock so that they would be ready to efficiently sacrifice the over 250,000 lambs that would have had to have been slain between 3 o'clock and 5 o'clock. And they had to end at 5 to give enough time to go to their homes and not break the Sabbath, which started at 6. Now that's a lot of lambs to get prepared from noon to 3 and to be slain from 3 to 5. And Josephus indicates that on a typical Passover... Almost 3 million people traveled to Jerusalem from around the world. Of course, not all of them would have to be present at the temple, since 10 people 
approximately, could eat a lamb, Josephus said that there were usually 250,000 men who would be waiting for a lamb at the temple, standing in line down the streets leading up to the temple. God wants to make sure that there is a spectacle that the nation of Israel will not be able to deny. And I believe the central focus of that spectacle at the temple is the tearing of this veil. That's what happens next in the text. Then the sun was darkened and the veil of the temple was torn in two. So not only was there darkness over the land, there was an obscuring of the sun, perhaps an eclipse. We don't know for sure. So what would all of those men standing there at the temple have experienced at that time? What would they have seen? This is speculation, but looking at Scripture, looking at reliable historical records, I believe that this is very likely what, we're about, what you're about to hear. Kaiser says, And then when they are relieved to finally have the power turned back on at 3 p.m., so there's light, they can see now, here's what they would have witnessed, putting all of the different sources together. According to Joseph, a Roman historian, and according to the Talmud, they would have seen the outside doors open up on their own, they would have heard a loud voice saying, we are leaving this place. Now, that would have been freaky, according to Pastor Kaiser, but that was the glory cloud leaving the temple. They would have then felt an earthquake, so the earth shaking underneath them. They would have seen a several-ton lintel holding up the outer curtain fall to the ground and the outer curtain going down with it, no longer obscuring the look into the courtyard. Then they would have seen the inner curtain being torn from top to bottom. It was obviously God who was ripping that curtain from top to bottom. That was the moment of Christ's death. And it was also supposed to be the moment in which lambs would have been slain. But panic ensued. And they could not do what they were scheduled to do. God did not want any competition with his final lamb. And all of this symbolism is lost on the Friday theory. On the Friday theory, the lambs would have been sacrificed the day before. Well, what captures the vision of the people the moment the lights are turned back on? The Holy of Holies. There would have been a number of people there in the right spot to actually get a look into the Holy of Holies. They can see right down the corridor, their eyes have unwittingly seen what not a one of them ever dreamed as being possible. Thousands of priests witnessed it and perhaps tens of thousands of Jews would have been perfectly positioned to have seen all the way down into the Holy of Holies. What was done was not done in a corner and the significance of this could not have been lost on the priests. So it's no wonder that so many priests became Christians in Acts 6 and we'll eventually get to that. Christ with one sweep of his hands was wiping away the sacrificial system to anyone who had eyes to see. So, brothers and sisters, the tearing of this veil represents the removal of the cherubim guarding the way to God's presence for those who trust in Christ. There's no cherubim between us and God anymore. In the Old Covenant, this removal was also available to them, but only once per year, and only in one place, and only for one man. To enter at the wrong time, in the wrong way, as the wrong person meant instant death. Now, in Christ, all the redeemed are made partakers of God's presence every day, in every place. And all the redeemed are restored 
to all and more than was lost by Adam. Now, I want us to see that Luke closely ties the ripping of the veil with the death of Christ. Luke closely ties it in, in his, the way he runs his narrative. They're back to back. And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. So the location of these two things in Luke's gospel, Luke is telling us these things are not by chance. These two things are connected. Now, as you know, I believe Luke wrote the book of Hebrews. And this same principle is on so many pages in the book of of Hebrews. And let's look at Hebrews chapter 10. It's It's a long scripture, but let's just get ourselves into the mind of of Luke, if it was Luke, and see how Christ's death alone is what makes the new and living way. See, there's an old way, an old and bloody way, an old and lethal way, if you will. And now there's a, a new and living way. He is alive, and it is a new way for us. Hebrews 10 says, For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with these same sacrifices, which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered? For the worshipers once purified would have had no more conscience, consciousness of sin. But in those sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. Therefore, when he came into the world... So the he there is Jesus. Therefore, when Jesus came into the world, he said, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you had no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come in the volume of the book. It is written of me to do your will, O God. So all of those sacrifices of the Old Testament, not a single drop of all that blood, or all of that blood combined together, could ever wash away a single sin. There's no efficacy in the blood of any of those animals. But there is a body that was coming. There is a body that would be given to Jesus Christ. And the death of that body and the shedding of that blood is what everything was pointing to. And we look to the death of his body and the shedding of his blood every day for the cleansing of our consciences. Going on, verse 8. Previously saying, Sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings, and offerings for sin you did not desire, nor had pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first, that he may establish the second. The first is all those animals, all that sacrificial system. The second is his body. By that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. From that time, waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. 
But the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us, for after he had said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds I will write them. Then he adds, their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. Do you see the connection between sanctification and the sacrifice of the body of the Lord Jesus Christ? Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, that's where we are now. When we say, lift up your hearts, you know when we are in Christ, where is Jesus? Is He in the outer courts with the Gentiles? Is He in just kind of barely into the... He's on the throne. He's in the holy of holies and we're there with Him. Having boldness, the place that a man could only go once a year and had to get it just right. But we're there all the time now. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which He consecrated for us through the veil, that is, His flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having a heart sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Can you imagine what it was like for the Jews to, to go through a time when the temple was not, the sacrifices were not happening? There was this awareness that their sense of well-being depended upon the existence of this structure and of this system on earth. Nothing can take away what Jesus Christ has established. He, in His indestructible life, has brought us with Him into heaven. And by tearing that curtain, this is true anywhere we go for any man, woman, or child, anywhere on this earth, anytime, day or night, by the Holy Spirit of God in union with Christ, we can be brought up into the Holy of Holies. Now this is, in many ways, Christianity 101. But if we don't appreciate the epic history that we have been through, that humanity has experienced, the closeness and the intimacy that Adam and Eve had with God, and the mandate that they were given to be the king and queen of the earth together and to go throughout the whole earth and make the whole earth into a garden, to work with the creatures and to take dominion over this whole earth in love towards one another. That's what was lost. And the nearness to God and the nearness to His angels and the closeness with His creatures and the, the bond with creation that we had. All of that was lost because of sin. <clears throat> so we have to get in touch with that and realize what was lost so we see what's being, what is and what is being restored by Jesus Christ our Lord. So the, the ripping of the veil is not just about the Old Testament sacrificial system. It is that. But it's also taking us back to Eden and showing us the way back to Mount Zion with God. So, just a couple of questions. Um, I hope that you see that we are bought, brought back into better than Eden by Jesus, the perfect Adam. 
You know, God promises that he will never let us go. And that all of his elect are his forever and ever and ever. And that we will not fall away from him in a way that leads to being lost to perdition. There's no chance of sinning in heaven. Did you know that? God will be so strong in us and through us. That's one huge way that our salvation is greater than what Adam and Eve had. Let me ask you a question in terms of your salvation. Man's greatest need is salvation. Is being brought back into the presence of God and to be brought back into God's favor and to be friends with God. That's our greatest need. How do you get there? Well, do you want to fight with a cherubim? There's, there's a, one way to look at it. So that would be one option. We could mount up all the armies of the earth and we could go try to fight the cherubim with the flaming sword. How do you think that would go? Well, do you think you'd get past even one of them? Probably not. But let's say you did. You want to fight with God? You want to fight with the Lord Jesus Christ? So these are foolish questions on purpose because I want you to see that so much of what we do in our lives is we fight or we reason or we sneak or we try to argue past God's guardians, uh, which the cherubim are just the representation of God enforcing his law. And so when you come to God, do you come to God aware that somebody has to tear that curtain for you? Do you, do you realize that when you come to God and you walk into heaven, it's only the cherubim part only because Jesus has gone before you and that you are in Christ and that God's wrath and God's anger upon you are no longer there only because of Jesus. So then I think kind of like Ezekiel, we can actually be friends with the cherub, cherubim as well. So that's going to be great, right? Being able to talk with these, these great angelic beings and get to know them. And as I've said before, it's, it should be thrilling to us to, to know that they're very likely in our midst. <clears throat> Next. Please remember that the, the tearing of the curtain means that we're brought into unbroken fellowship with our Creator. The Jewish system gave a sense that everything was going to be okay, but to say that they were able to have unbroken fellowship with certainty with their Creator is probably a bit of a stretch. But we have that. Do you understand that, that in in your life now, because of faith in Jesus Christ, through prayer, you can have constant union with the God who made you and constant fellowship and communion with God? This is worth celebrating. (laughs) Now, so therefore the question comes, how does this impact your prayers? What is your prayer life like? Do you, when you're praying, see a curtain with cherubim on front of it, if you will? Thinking that somehow you have to pray just right, get it just right somehow? Relying on yourself, thinking about yourself, thinking about your sin? Or do you realize that Jesus Christ has torn the veil and his body has gone in ahead of you and because of him you are welcome in God's presence? I know you know this in your mind, but are your, do your prayers reflect this? Okay. 
Because the Day of Atonement in the Old Testament would have taught the Jews a way of thinking. Kind of this intermittent, regularly scheduled, reliable relationship that they had with God. Um, So do you think that your nearness to God is somehow defined by your time or your place? Do you, do you, or how you feel. So your time and your place. Now, I'm not saying there's not sacred space and there's not sacred time. There is. But where is Christ? And how often is he there? Right? He is always at God's right hand. He's always there. He doesn't leave. There's not a time when we're not welcome there because Jesus is always there. So it's not about where you are. It's not about what time it is in your life. It's about where Jesus is all the time. So I hope that will impact your prayer life as you consider the astounding immediate access and communion that God provides for us in Jesus Christ. Now, there's also this reminder to us from the old covenant system What is your view of your sinful flesh? What is your view of your sinful flesh? And really I think the tendency for us is to think that we somehow have to clean ourselves up from our past sin. We have to keep going through it over and over again in order to really be sure. And then that leads to doubting future forgiveness. And so we end up living in a world very similar to waiting for bulls and lambs to be slaughtered. Because Jesus Christ, in his body, took all of our sin upon himself. Think of it. Everything you've ever said or done, all the sins that you and I have committed in the last 30 minutes, and everything that we'll do in the future, or be in the future in our flesh, all of it was placed on Jesus Christ. We were told, once for all, So it might be kind of confusing when we come and we confess our sin each week, right? That might be confusing. Well, why do we need to confess our sin if we're already forgiven? Well, the answer is we discover our sin along the way and we find that as we get there, Jesus has already forgiven us, that he's already died for us. And he calls on us to confess our sins to him and to be forgiven and to be cleansed of our sins. Now, Christ is now reigning as the second Adam, carrying out the creation mandate. So the veil was torn. Eden was restored fully on Mount Zion. And Christ, as the perfect man, returned there at the ascension and reigns. And everything that was said to Adam, Jesus is now doing and more. So it's not just that all the enemies of Christ are being placed under his feet. It is also that we're now made able to carry out God's great design for this globe. And that is that the people of God would work together by the Holy Spirit of God to love one another under our king in harmony with his angels to carry out this whole thing of dominion. Here it is in Genesis 1. This has never been taken away. You should read this with as much joy and excitement as you read the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28. 
Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Did God ever take this commandment away? It's been repeated, hasn't it? We see it uh, after the flood. We see it in Psalm 8. We see it mentioned throughout the New Testament as well. So when you look at the Great Commission, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to the Lord Jesus Christ. And through the preaching of the gospel, person after person is being restored to this same status, this restored humanity. And as this is occurring... The design of God is being fulfilled for the entire earth. This should be thrilling to us. So the question is, how does this impact your view of sanctification? And how does this impact your view of God's law? Because we might be tempted to think that sanctification is only about what's happening inside of us. And the way that we're changing in our relationships and our interactions with others. But sanctification is also a familial, a, an ecclesiastical, a cultural event as well that God is carrying out. Where he's beautifying his bride like we see in Ephesians 5. So all of this fits together to show us that when Jesus Christ tore the veil, he takes us back to Eden. And in Eden we see our individual salvation combined with our corporate functioning as the people of God in the earth. And this synergy is exciting. So the idea is we should be working together with other Christians. Right? I mean, that's the simplest way to say it. We should be striving for, looking for ways to synergize and work with other Christians. And to be a part of the gospel at work in our community. So let's, uh, let's pray about that, brothers and sisters. And ask the Lord to bless us with connections with other Christians in our community. To be able to serve Christ together with them. Next, and we've been through this before, but just again to point, point this out. Do you understand how Christ's bodily sacrifice abolished the Old Testament sacrifices once and for all? So you see that. So the restorative law, all of it that has to do with the temple and the sacrificial system, all of that dispensation is gone. But do you simultaneously see that how his life, his resurrection, and his ascension, and his placement at the right hand of the Father, his kingdom work pouring out his spirit, and the preservation of his word to all the earth, restores us to the power of God in love. And when I, when I say love, that is the living out of the moral law of God in all of our lives. So when, when Jesus came, he did not destroy the moral law. Not one jot, not one tittle. And he actually didn't destroy the restorative law either. Just that transient administration of the restorative law. Because we still have to be saved through death. We still have to be saved through atonement. We still have to be saved through Christ's sacrifice. So anyone who wants to get past the cherubim has to go and be washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. And that was true then. It is true now and it will always be true. So that restorative law will never be taken away.
So I hope that you can see by the tearing of that temple, excuse me, of that temple veil, that we have been brought back into more than Adam lost. We have been brought back into communion with God where we can have confidence to come into His presence. And we've been brought back into the ability to work with one another as Christians in this earth to accomplish what God has called us to do in this earth as His people. This should give us great hope, brothers and sisters. Let us pray. Almighty and gracious Heavenly Father, we rejoice that when Jesus Christ died, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And we are so thankful, Father, that instead of, as we deserve, casting us out of Eden and off the earth and into hell forever and destroying us and perhaps starting over with a different universe, instead, you in your great and infinite wisdom saw fit to bring redemption to a people who could never redeem themselves. You came and brought a people back into your presence who could never make our way back to you. You came and restored humanity to your great plan for this earth when all we can do is ruin it and kill each other. And so we rejoice, O oh God, in Jesus Christ who has brought us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light so that every person, in every place, at every time, through Jesus Christ, can be brought into the Holy of Holies and worship You as God and Father and praise You and receive the outpouring of Your Holy Spirit and be sanctified unto the good works that You've called us to walk into in this life. We thank You, Father. In Jesus' name, Amen.